Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, Eric, as you know, I am prone to partake of certain edibles of a calming nature, if you know what I'm saying. Um, but it turns out that I'm missing the boat by merely consuming them. The real action, it seems. Uh, is in selling them. Uh, Snoop Dogg, duh, has a line of cannabis products called Leaf Spice Snoop. Uh, Martha Stewart, Snoop's bestie, uh, sells CBD-infused pet treats, apparently. Uh, and Jaleel White recently released a Purple Urkel cannabis, because of course he did. Um, someone else who's not been shy about his recreational drug use is Mike Tyson, who's now released his own brand of edibles in the shape of an ear. But not just any ear. Evander Holyfield's ear with a chunk bitten out. Um, he calls them Mike's Bites. Um, so in the immediate aftermath of the craziness that was the bite fight, what odds would you have given on this actually being the outcome, <laughs> on how that whole scenario ended up settling down more than a quarter century later? And is this going to be the development that uh, prompts you to join those of us who like to partake? <laughs> well, um, to spell things out, I'm not a Above partaking. Um, okay. Many years ago, I partook as much as the next guy. But I have certain rules about partaking. I don't like to be around people that I'm not 100% uh, yes. comfortable with when partaking. And I don't like to partake if I have anything important to do the next day because I am susceptible to day after mental fog. <laughs> um, so these rules add up to me partaking only on very rare occasions over the last 20 years or so. Um, the problem with Mike's Bites is the first bite no big deal. You can keep going. But the second bite, that's it. It's over. You're disqualified. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, probably not happening for me. I don't think my partaking habits are about to change. Uh, but the fact that Mike found a way to cash in 25 years later, Amazing. you asked what were the odds? Uh, Considering what a long shot he was to still be alive even <laughs> 10 years later, uh, combine that with uh, the state of legalization in 1997, I'd say, yeah, about maybe a, a thousand to one against this specific development. Yeah, just just amazing. I wonder if Evander gets any uh, any royalties from this. I mean, he should. It it's he his should, ear. Didn't he? <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, they, they've, they've made pretty good hay out of that, actually. There was that commercial a while back, too. I can't even remember right. what it what it was for. I want to say barbecue sauce or something, was maybe? It? I can't remember. I but, yeah, they definitely, <laughs> they, they've milked it a little bit. <laughs> they've, they've leaned in, uh, just as Mike did uh, 25 oh, years ago. Good. Wow, look mm -hmm. at you, man. Okay, mm -hmm. we're on fire. Mm -hmm. this, this augurs well for the rest of the podcast, um, which is good because we have not one, not two, but nine boxing cards to preview after Showtime released its schedule from now until July 9th. Uh, we have an interview with one of the headliners of the first of those cards, Terrell Cochet, who will face Tim Zhu in a Showtime Championship Boxing main event next week. Um, and we'll do a deep dive, complete with predictions, into that March 26th card. Uh, but first, let's take a look at the Showtime announcement. Eric, there were quite a few fights and cards that we'd already mentioned as being in the works or likely to take place. Uh, Showtime's announcement on Tuesday confirmed those and revealed a few more. Uh, before we offer our take, uh, let's run through that schedule really briefly, shall we? Yeah, or at least as briefly as one as briefly can as run can. through yeah. an announcement of nine fight cards. Um, as you noted, everything kicks off next Saturday, March 26th, with a Showtime Championship Boxing triple header from the Armory in Minneapolis. 
as we'll be looking at that in detail shortly. Let's skip over that for now and move on to the next one, which follows just two weeks later on April 9th. Another Showtime Championship boxing triple header with junior middleweights Erickson Lubin and Sebastian Fundora squaring off in the main event from the theater at Virgin Hotels in Las Vegas. The rest of the televised card features two additional 154-pound bouts, uh, Tony Harrison versus Sergio Garcia and Kevin Salgado versus Brian Perella. The week after that is one of the two pay-per-views on the schedule, and it comes with a televised non-pay-per-view undercard. Uh, that two-fight card will air on Showtime prior to the pay-per-view, and will feature welterweights Rajab Butayev and Amantis Senyonis, and rising 140-pound prospect and multiple-time podcast guest Brandon Lee taking on Zachary Ochoa. Then we switch to the pay-per-view, and we've talked before about two of the three undercard bouts, uh, Isak Cruz versus Yuriarkis Gamboa and Jose Valenzuela against Francisco Vargas. The third is unbeaten welterweight Cody Crowley taking on veteran Josecito Lopez. And then, of course, the main event sees Errol Spence take on Manny Pacquiao conqueror Jordanis Ugas. Then we have a few weeks to catch our collective breath until Showtime Championship Boxing returns on May 14th. With two fights so far confirmed, a co-main featuring a young man with seemingly limitless potential, Jaron Boots Ennis, taking on Custio Clayton in a welterweight title eliminator. And the main event is the rescheduled junior middleweight unification rematch between Jermel Charlo and Brian Castaño. And that is followed one week later, May 21st, by a super middleweight clash between David Benavides and David Lemieux, supported by yet more junior middleweight action in the form of Uelvis Gomez versus Jorge Cota. Uh, one further week later, it's the second pay-per-view on the schedule, featuring a main event of Javante Davis against Raleigh Romero in the lightweight division. And on June 4th, the fourth card in four weeks features one of our favorites, Stephen Fulton Jr., taking on Daniel Roman at 122 pounds, the co-main is a 168-pound bout between David Morrell and Calvin Henderson. Uh, after a one-week pause, it's the fifth card in six weeks. This one from Houston, where hometown favorite Jamal Charlo squares off against Maciej Sulensky. And the schedule to date ends on July 9th in the form of a featherweight title bout between Mark Magsayo, who recently dethroned Gary Russell Jr., and Ray Vargas. Phew, deep breath. <laughs> All right. That is a lot to cover, and we won't try to cover it all now. Uh, we should note also that it isn't necessarily the entirety of the Showtime boxing schedule for the summer. There are, of course, undercard fights to add. There is space for a show box or two or three, among other possible additions. Uh, with that caveat, Eric, allow me, if you will, to ask you a two-part, somewhat open-ended question. Any fight or fights or overall card uh, that leaps out at you that you'd like to comment on? And do you have a favorite storyline to follow from these nine cards? So I guess the standout fight to me, uh, especially among new additions to the schedule that we hadn't been hearing any rumors about prior to this past week, is Stephen Fulton against Danny Roman. If that one doesn't catch your eye, doesn't move your needle, yeah. then I'm sorry, you're just not a boxing fan. Uh, turn off this podcast right now, unsubscribe, go listen to some generic mainstream sports talk <laughs> pod if Fulton Roman doesn't excite you at least a little bit. Uh, cool boy staff, of course. We've been covering his career very closely the last couple of years. He's emerged as probably the number one fighter at 122 pounds by beating, in succession, Arnold Hagai, Angelo Leo, and Brandon Figueroa, combined record prior to facing Fulton of 58-0-2. All three were handed their first loss by Fulton. The Figueroa fight last Thanksgiving weekend was close, but I thought the decision was correct. So here's Fulton, 27 years old, hitting his prime quite possibly a guy who's ready to crack the pound-for-pound -pound list, and he's taking on Danny Roman, 
undoubtedly a top four fighter at the weight, along with Fulton Figueroa and Mirajan Akhmedaliev. Roman, of course, lost a split decision to Akhmedaliev a little over two years ago in a tremendous fight. That ended a 19-fight winning streak. Roman has come back with two solid decision wins. He's in the heart of his prime at age 31. Both of these fighters have exciting styles. It's a great matchup. Um, yeah. I'm sure Fulton will be favored, but it shouldn't be by much, maybe two to one or so. Uh, this is just one of those can't-miss fights, and it's, if not my favorite on the whole schedule, then certainly my favorite among those that we just learned about last <laughs> week. As for a storyline, I'll put this out there. Opinions vary as to whether Raleigh Romero will prove to be a test for Javante Davis in the ring. But I love this fight as a test of Tank Davis's drawing power and marketability. It's in a media hub at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn over the Memorial Day holiday weekend. It's his fourth straight time headlining a Showtime pay-per-view. Uh, clearly, PBC and Showtime view him as a star, as a moneymaker. Now, official pay-per-view buy numbers for his fights have been hard to come by, but reports have him around or a bit over 200,000 for both the Santa Cruz fight and the Barrios fight, which are considered very good, if not earth-shattering. Um, a bit lower for the fight with latish replacement Isak Cruz, but gate sales for all three added a lot to the pie. Clearly, the bean counters are happy with Davis as a pay-per-view attraction at this point. They wouldn't be putting him on pay-per-view a fourth time in a row otherwise. But this is a good test. Can he sell out Barclays, an arena where he's fought twice but never headlined? Can the personalities and polarizing aspects of both him and Romero get big buzz going? You know, we, we all want to see the four princes start fighting each other. Specifically, we love the idea of the hype that would surround Tank versus Ryan Garcia. Mm -hmm. I think this fight and how it sells plays a role in whether everyone decides the time is right financially to push to make that kind of deal. So those are some of my initial thoughts on this uh, fights coming up. How about you, Kieran? What fight or fight card stands out, and, and what storyline do you have your eye on? I'm really struck by by the April 16th card, top to bottom, and actually all the more so because of the televised non-pay-per-view undercard. Right. Um, as you mentioned, we briefly considered previously a couple of those pay-per-view undercard bouts. Um and they have the potential to be exciting and enthralling, but they could also be one-sided examples of, of youth prevailing over experience. And the additional pay-per-view bout that we just mentioned, Cody Crowley against Jose Cito Lopez, continues that that theme of the whole pay-per-view undercard of Crossroads fights. Every one of those pay-per-view undercards is Young Gun versus Federan. Um, but what I'm super impressed by is not just the fact that there is a non-pay-per-view lead-in, but it's a real quality uh, non-pay-per-view lead-in. The welterweight matchup between Ratchet Butayev and Imantis Stanionis is probably as good as any other fight on the entire card, with the possible yeah. exception of the main event. It really is a quality matchup of, of first-rate welterweight contenders. Um, and that card, that, that non-pay-per-view card, will also provide a big platform um, for a guy who I think deserves one and who so far seems to be doing everything right, Brandon Lee, who um, continues his progression against Zachary Ochoa, and who's starting to feel now as if he's on the cusp of making a major step up should he emerge victorious. Um, you know, we've, we've followed him as well in the same way that, you know, mentions that Steph Fulton Lee, obviously a little ways behind him, but, but definitely getting there and, and gradually cranking up his opposition 
and still looking good. So I'm glad that he's going to get, you know, probably more eyeballs than he's than he's used to getting. And uh, he's somebody who deserves it, I think, and and I think is somebody who has the opportunity to really break out. Um, the storyline for me. I'm tempted to talk about the junior middleweights because the schedule is full of them um, from the all 154 pound card on April 9th to next week's main event to the Charlotte Castagna rematch. Um, but I'm actually going to save junior middleweight conversation for later. He says, smile, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, uh, and instead, what I'm going to go with is, is John Ennis. Um, everything about Ennis exudes quality like like you said he, he seems to have almost limitless potential uh it feels very much as if he's a champion in waiting um castillo clayton who he's facing is a solid opponent but he really shouldn't stand in the way of seemingly inexorable progress and, and what's great for me for us for our network is that as Keith Eidek recently revealed on Boxing Scene, Ennis has signed a multi-fight agreement with Showtime to cover at least his next three fights. Um, Showtime's covered his, televised his last nine fights as he's grown from prospect to contender. It feels as if the next three fights have the potential to move him through that next stage from contender to challenger, um, perhaps to title holder. Um, and, and then subsequently beyond those three fights, maybe beyond... We've talked a lot about Errol Spence and Terence Crawford over the years. Um, by the time they finally square off, if ever they do, the winner may not have much of an opportunity to glory in a lengthy reign because by then, there's a real possibility that Jerron Ennis is going to be ready to step right on in there and take them on and maybe take over the mantle of, at the top of the welterweight division. He's not very far away, Boots Ennis. And uh, I, I'm just excited for the fact that we're going to see him again and uh, we're going to see him repeatedly on Showtime. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Steven Espinoza, as long as you're locking him into this multi-fight deal, maybe a fight in his hometown of Philly would be a good idea. Ah, there you go. I'm just putting it out there. There you go. All right. We skipped over the opening card of the schedule, but let's go back to it now. It is taking place next Saturday at the Armory in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, and let's speak now with one of the fighters in the main event. He was a 2012 Olympian and is now a contender with a professional record of 22, two and one with 11 KOs. And he is, as I mentioned, in the main event of that Showtime Championship Boxing when he takes on unbeaten Australian Tim Zhu. Terrell Gachet, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, uh, Terrell, the, the great majority of the attention right now is being directed toward Tim Zhu. Uh, he's the son of a Hall of Famer. He's undefeated. He's making his U.S. debut. To put it bluntly, in, in a promotional sense, he's being treated as the A-side. How does that make you feel do, do you like that he gets all that pressure do you feel disrespected what, what's your response to this setup um i don't feel no type of way about it it's obviously the, the way how it's supposed to be done you know what i mean because he's a little bit more known to me as a people you know by him being a son of a hall of famer and um being a having a good background from australia people that follow him so it don't make me feel no type of way um, only thing I care about is when we get in the ring. Um, and talking of that, look, you're coming off an eye-opening win. Uh, you're not really known as a knockout artist, but you KO Jamonte Clark in just two rounds your last time out. How important was that win for like injecting some new energy into your career? You know, they they say I'm not much of a uh, puncher in a lot of fights, but I knocked out half the guys I stepped in the ring with, so um, <laughs> I definitely can <laughs> get a guy out of there. But uh, it was a good fight for me. I, I liked it, that fight. 
we we won the training camp and um, executed the game plan. So I needed I needed a big win, and I know I I did to be relevant, and um, that's what I did. It's that was a full year ago now. Is is it frustrating that you have such a great win and you feel like maybe you got some energy and momentum going, and then you got to wait a year to capitalize on it? Yeah, I mean it's um I don't know, you know exactly the reason, but uh sometimes some of the fights that you want just don't line up the way you want them to. So, but at the end of the day, I'm a um true professional and I just stay ready. And I know all of this comes to game, so that's all I do. I just stay ready and keep working. And whatever whatever the reason it's led you to this big fight against Tim Zhu now, uh, give us your scouting report on him. What what does he do well? What doesn't he do well? Is he overhyped because of his dad's name? Or, or are you impressed with what you've seen from him? Uh, to be honest, I think it's a good, great fight for me. I like challenges. This guy, young, young guy, he's coming. Uh, bring a lot of pressure, you know. And that's the that's the fights I want. As you can see in my resume, I take the challenger fights. You got Lara, Lubin, uh Austin Trout, now Tim Zhu and you know, the list goes on. I think for me, um, in order to be the best, you gotta be the best. So that's what I wanna that's what I wanna do. Um when you got a guy like Tim Zhu, you know that he's he's gonna kinda fight. That's all he's I've seen. And um it's a challenge for me to just be able to prove that I'm the top dog at this weight if I would press a win over a fighter like that. Right. But you you say he's a guy who comes to fight. You 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 like to be in with a guy who's, you know, going to come forward a, a bit and you don't have to go chasing after them as stylistically. Do you do you like this particular matchup? I like every matchup. <laughs> if, you, if, if I can... <laughs> I like to fight, so if I gotta, you know, every fight is different. This fight is more challenging uh, for me because he he's a he's a pressure fighter. I like I like to figure out how to um, break him down, and that's what we did this camp, and that's what we're gonna show in the fight. So um, I like I just like to fight. I think he's a, um, a tough top contender and tough fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, in your biggest fights over the last five years or so, you've had a lot of close ones and some mixed results. And you mentioned these names, you know, the decision losses to Erislandi Lara and Erickson Lubin, that highly controversial draw with Austin Trout that most people feel you won, um, the, the quick KO of Jamonte Clark. You've got another big opportunity here. How badly do you need this win? And what kind of doors does it open up for you if you get the win? Um, you know, I don't, I don't look at stuff like, oh, how badly do I need? This is just another fight that I got to win. Every fight you got to win. Every fight um, keep you relevant, you know. You can lose to a guy with no name and you still, you know what I mean? So it's just, I don't put that kind of pressure on myself. I'm going to go out there and do what I train to do and um, you'll see come March 26th. All right, so so uh, Terrell, this year uh, actually marks the tenth anniversary of your trip to London for the 2012 Olympics. Hard to believe it's been ten years, but uh, yeah. I <laughs> I, th- I think the jury is kind of still out on on how your team is going to be remembered in terms of their pro careers. You know, uh, er- Errol Spence has certainly been the most successful to this point, but your teammates also included Jose Ramirez, Jojo Diaz, Rashi Warren, Jamel Herring, several other notables. Have you stayed mm-hmm. tight with any of those guys uh, throughout your pro careers? 
Yeah, um, we, you know, we are busy in our in our own lives, but we are, you know, stay stay in touch, some kind of way. But um, everybody doing their thing. It's all love from um, all of us because, you know, we shared that experience together. So, uh, also they doing they doing great. A lot of them, yeah. It's just motivation to see our team still still active, still getting them fights and wins and got a lot of championships coming out of that team so yeah so i'm curious what do, what do you make uh, specifically of, of errol's upcoming fight with your dennis ugas and and also any opinions on who you'd favor if errol ever does fight terence crawford like everyone wants to see <laughs> yeah uh i think man errol is a tough guy so he he a great fighter you know i had a pleasure with um sparring with him in london and he's real strong for just strong period, but especially for 147. But um, I think that Earl is going to beat Ugas. Um, I'm not sure how. I want to say stoppage, but maybe decision. And uh, to me, honestly, I think him and Terrence Crawford is 50-50 fight, but, um, you know, <laughs> Maybe I'm a little biased. I gotta go with Errol. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and 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 if Errol does beat Ugas, and uh, you know, since you're 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 friends with him from the Olympic experience and all this, that if you get a chance to talk to him on on behalf of all of boxing, ask him to do what it takes to make make the Terence Crawford fight. We all want to see it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's bring the focus back to you for our final question. It's the mm-hmm. night of March 26th in Minneapolis. How do you envision this fight playing out, and what can the fans expect from Terrell Cachet? Um, you, like this fight is a is a great fight, and I I just want to go in there and put on a dominant performance. You know what I mean? Do what I do best, and we're not worried about anything that he brings to the table. We only focus on what we doing. And I I see my hand being raised, whether it's decision or knockout, and um just to get to the belts. That's my ultimate goal. We got um Charlo and Castaño fighting for all the belts. That's exciting. Me and him, you know, we we in line for it. So I'm I'm go out there and put it all online and get the win so I can get after the belts. Jarrell, we're looking forward to seeing it. Best of luck to you. And thanks again for putting some time aside in training camp to talk to us. Oh, man, thanks for calling me and having me as well. Appreciate all right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jarrell. Great talking to you. All right. You too, man. All right. Thanks again to Terrell for his time. He seems like a good guy. Uh, I, I yeah. sure hope he doesn't fall victim to the Raskin and Mulvaney interview curse. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Although he is the underdog, so I'm not sure if the curse applies. Uh, and mm. may- maybe even as the underdog, maybe he's the man to reverse it. Um, let's explore that very topic as we break <laughs> down the whole March 26th card, starting with Terrell's fight against Tim Zhu. As you already mentioned, Gachet enters the ring with a pro record of 22-2-1 with 11 knockouts. Zoo, despite having only been a professional since 2016, has almost as many fights and a record of 20-0 with 15 knockouts. Kieran, as we mentioned in our interview with Terrell, Zoo is the A-side here, the promising son of a popular Hall of Famer. What are his strengths and weaknesses? What does Gachet need to do to pull off the upset? And what's your prediction? So one of Zoo's big strengths is his body punching. Uh, close to 38% of all his landed shots are body shots, which is significantly above uh, the, the Compu Box average. Um, he's an accurate puncher as well, and he's got generally good defense. Um, on average, he outlands his opponents 
18.7 to 7.1 overall per round and 16.4 to 5.7 power. Um, he's got a terrific engine, too. He just doesn't seem to falter down the stretch. In fact, last time out, um, it was a, he scored a 12-round decision over Takeshi Inoue, and his punch output actually increased as the fight went on. Uh, he closed the show by throwing over 77 punches per round and scoring a 12-round knockdown. He's resilient, is Tim Zhu. He's aggressive. He has high punch output. He targets the body. All in all, he's an imposing package to face, but he does have a couple of slight weaknesses. Um, he's slightly vulnerable to counters because he is so aggressive. And his jab is primarily a rumor. Um, you do the math there when I say, you know, uh, he lands 18.7 punches around and 16.4 or power. Do the math. That's just a couple of jabs per round. Um, now, that might not be a factor next Saturday because... Cochet is the longer, taller guy with the greater reach and just the inherently superior jab. Um, so, so maybe that isn't in any way going to be a factor. Maybe, maybe Sue would have to sort of give up the jab anyway. But interestingly, one possible weakness, at least as it directly relates to Cochet that Sue may have, and one that he can't fix, is that he's right-handed. Um, Cochet began his career 20-0. Over the last five years, he's dropped to 22-2-1. Part of that is the quality of people he's faced over the last few years. Erickson Lubin, Austin Trout, Erislandi Lara, among others. Part of it is also during that time he has fought exclusively southpaws. Um, he's developed a reputation as something of a nearly man, someone good enough to meet, beat most B-level fighters, but not good enough to take that extra step. Someone who's technically sound and works behind that good jab, but doesn't have a set of gears to work through. Someone who is a little earnest but dull. But before he got stuck in that recent 2-2-1 two, two rut, he was more explosive, a more exciting fighter. So the question is, has the relative slowdown recently been the result of stepping up in competition? Most likely. But could it also be the factor that he just doesn't perform that well against Southpaws? Well, facing an orthodox fighter, free him up a little bit again. Mm. Um, if he is going to uh, score a success, what does he have to do? Look, he's the experienced man in there. He's fought by far the higher caliber of pro competition. He's been to the Olympics. Uh, he needs to use that experience and his jab and his reach and his boxing ability. Don't let Zoo get set. Don't let him charge forward. Keep him on the end of the jab. And most importantly, turn him. Turn him this way and that. Just don't give him a chance to advance in straight lines. Keep him on the back foot. Box him constantly. Uh, keep focused. If he could do that, Gaucher could not just get the win here. He could get a comprehensive statement win that really launches him back into the echelon of top flight title contenders. That said, I'm not sure that he'll be able to. I do think he'll have some success early. I think Zoo might struggle to get going a bit through the first few rounds. But I do think that bit by bit, Zoo will find a way to touch him, especially to the body, to slow him down ever so slightly as the fight progresses, and then sort of begin to take over down the stretch. I wouldn't be surprised if Gaucher wins, say, I don't know, five of the first seven rounds. But... I think Zoo, once he gets going, will will sweep the final few rounds, and he'll wind up a close but unanimous decision winner. Hmm. All right. Uh, so let me take you back 25 years, Kieran. Uh, okay. The date is May 31st, 1997. We've been going back to 1997 a lot already Indeed. on this podcast. Costa Zoo is undefeated in his 20th pro fight, 27 years old, taking on 33-year-old veteran Vince Phillips, who's hitting that last chance phase of his career. We all know what happened. Phillips KO10 in the 1997 upset of the year. Now we have Tim Zhu, also 27 years old, in his 21st fight, taking on 34-year-old Terrell Gachet, who's running out of chances like Vince Phillips uh -huh. was 25 years ago. 
when we had Dan Raphael on last week, uh, when he wasn't busy putting out the fires I said in his house, uh, Dan mentioned how much Tim Zhu physically resembles his dad. Yeah. So it makes it that much easier to envision in your mind's eye history repeating. So, uh, yeah, I'm pulling the trigger on the upset pick, Kieran. Um, nice. Gachet is listed as about a three and a half to one underdog. I think he's going to pull it off. Um, Zoo has looked good. He's exceeded any expectations that he's getting by purely on that last yeah. name. You know, he is a talented fighter, but the opposition hasn't been on Gachet's level. Uh, Jeff Horn was undersized and not what he once was. Dennis Hogan, meh. Takeshi Inoue, meh. Uh, those wins prove that Zoo is not all hype, that there is some substance there, but he hasn't been tested against a world-class opponent yet. And I look at Gachet, and this is what you mentioned. He's 2-2-1 two, two and one in his last five, and it should be 3-2, and two, but whatever. Sure. But, but it's all against Southpaws, and his CompuBox numbers are far better across the board against Orthodox opponents. So he's got to be loving this opportunity to fight a righty, one who comes forward. I fully expect we'll see the best version of Terrell Gachet. And by the way, Gachet is a big 154-pounder. He's fought as high mm -hmm. as 164. As you mentioned, he's a little taller and longer than Zhu, so I fully expect that he can indeed out-jab Zhu, who, as you said, he doesn't use the jab much anyway. Zhu is an excellent body puncher, as you brought up. 37.7% of his landed punches are to the body. I wouldn't be the least bit shocked if he hurt Gachet to the body and my upset pick blows up in my face. Um, but I'm digging in on this one. I think Gachet is a serious step up for Zoo. I think he can outbox Zoo. He can mix up styles, counterpunch some, come forward some. I would imagine he'll have to gut out some tough moments. But I think this is a kitchen sink fight for Gachet. He's going to dig down, give the performance of his life, take over in the middle rounds, and start overwhelming Zoo. And I got to do it. Got to mirror the Philip Zoo result. <laughs> right. I'm saying KO10. Terrell Gachet. He's going to reverse that Raskin and Mulvaney curse, baby. Well, that would, that would, if it actually does end up exactly that, that would really be something. Yes. And, and then uh, uh, 25 years later, he'll release a, a, a range of uh, edibles. <laughs> that's that's what all fighters do 25 years later apparently after so. a defining moment. Yes. Exactly. Apparently okay. so. Uh, um, the co-main event is a, is a lightweight contest, and it features a prospect who's been shining on Showtime of late, Michelle Rivera, who's coming off wins over Jose Romero and John Fernandez. He brings a record of 22-0 with 14 KOs into the ring against Joseph Adorno, who is now 14-0-2 with 12 KOs, and whom we most recently discussed when previewing Jermaine Ortiz's bout with Nahir Albright the other week, as in his most recent outing. Adorno dropped Ortiz twice, but had to settle for a draw. Uh, Eric, Rivera's certainly a character. He's an exciting fighter, as well as a charismatic talker, although the jury remains out as to which previous fighter he most closely physically <laughs> right. resembles. Um, how impressed have you been with Rivera's outing so far? And do you expect him to beat Adorno, who, let us not forget, is himself undefeated? Hit me with your predictions, sir. So, yeah, I've been impressed with Rivera and in different ways from fight to fight. The knockout win over John Fernandez, he showed some grit and he showed one-punch power. That was the exciting, aggressive, knockout artist version of Rivera. Then he comes out the next time and boxes circles around Jose Romero. Just a masterclass. Doesn't come close to losing a single round. I think he's a legit top prospect. He's not a Boots Ennis level talent, no. but, you know, he's a guy who has the look of a future champion. At lightweight, he isn't getting the hype of Ryan Garcia or Devin Haney or Teofimo Lopez, nor does he deserve that yet based on who he's fought so far. 
but he might eventually prove he belongs in that conversation. Certainly, I think he has more upside than Joseph Adorno. Adorno is a talented guy himself, and he's young. He's even younger than Rivera. He's only 22. Rivera's 24. But he's been inconsistent. Um, He's had trouble making 135 pounds, missed weight a couple of times. That concerns me. He's had trouble pacing himself. You know, certain fights where he started fast and then slows down, whether because he actually gets tired or just because he's worried about having the gas to last the distance. Interestingly, this is his first fight without his dad, Anibal, training him. Um, After the draw against Jermaine Ortiz, he decided he needed to make some changes. That makes this outing that much more unpredictable in terms Mm. of which Adorno we'll see. Now, if I wanted to have some fun with the prediction, I might say Adorno gets his third draw in a row, Um, (laughs) but I don't see it. I think there is a clear separation in skill here. I think this matchup is competitive, but not hard to pick a winner in. I think it's Rivera using superior skills early. It's Rivera starting to pull away in the middle rounds, and then it's Rivera closing the show. I'm going to say Rivera hurts Adorno and finishes the job in round eight. How about you? Um, yeah, look, the records at, at first glance suggest two barely evenly matched undefeated young pros. But um, at the moment, the career is not exactly headed in opposite directions, but they certainly are. They have different levels of momentum behind them. Uh, right. for Rivera's still improving, still reaching for his ceiling, whereas Adorno is showing signs maybe of bumping up against his. Now, that might not be entirely fair. After all, you and I were very, very impressed with Jermaine Ortiz the other week. Mm-hmm. And and so Adorno's draw looks pretty decent in that context. Um, but he did also end up with a draw in his previous outing, and that was against the guy who's essentially a journeyman. Um, Adorno actually hasn't won a fight since October 2019, um, and he struggled with his weight in the past, uh, as, as you mentioned, on, on more than one occasion. Um, Rivera, in contrast, feels as if he's got everything going for him in this contest. Um, he's better quality of opposition already, faster hands, a higher volume of punches, seemingly more in that Roy Jones toolbox to dip into. Um, and as I mentioned, it's seemingly a higher ceiling, but... All that said, I don't think this will be easy. Um, I am, like yourself, a little curious to see what difference, if any, there is to Adorno with the change in his corner. He said that he felt like he just needed to start taking boxing that much more seriously, that maybe he hadn't been properly focused on it of late. So it will be interesting to see if if there's a, a sort of reborn Joseph Adorno here. I suspect the first few rounds will be pretty close, maybe some nip and tuck affairs. But like yourself, I do think that Rivera's quality will eventually begin to shine. Um, I I think that maybe he will have gotten a marginal degree of separation between himself and Adorno and will look as if he's starting to pull away and cruise away. And then I think the end will come quite suddenly. Um, As we've seen, Rivera is perfectly capable of doing the the one-punch knockout finish. I think that's what will happen here. Um, He'll start weakening Adorno a little bit. And then, believe it or not, I had also put Rivera (laughs) explodes with the combination and puts Adorno down and out in round eight. So there you go. You got to stop looking at my notes, Kieran. All right. The card (laughs) opens with 140-pound action. Uh, Actually, slightly above. This is a non-title 10-rounder, so they went with a catch weight of 142, but they're basically junior welterweights. It's Elvis Rodriguez, 12-1-1 with 11 knockouts, facing off against Juan Jose Velasco, 23-2 with 14 KOs. 
Rodriguez went 11-0-1 with 10 KOs until he dropped an upset decision to former podcast guest Kenneth Sims last May, after which his promoter Top Rank promptly dropped him. Kieran, is that move by Top Rank a sign that Rodriguez really isn't as good as his record showed? And if so, is Velasco the man to give Rodriguez his second loss? What's your prediction here? Yeah, it's not good, is it? I mean, when a promoter drops a boxer that rapidly, um, particularly a boxer whom up until then they'd been pushing reasonably strongly, it's generally a sign that all along they knew that his record was perhaps hiding something, Mm. that the evidence from the gym suggested that maybe he wasn't quite as good as the results were indicating. Uh, Even so, it's rare to throw him off quite that quickly. You would think they would normally give him a second chance, see if he could rebuild. Whether they dropped him really fast suggests that they have not given up on him before the Sims lost, but we're almost expecting something like that to come along. Um, He did bounce back from that defeat uh, by knocking previously unbeaten Juan Pablo Romero down twice and out on the undercard of the Canelo Alvarez Caleb plant last year. So that's, a good sign. I mean, that's a sign that he's able to respond to the disappointment and adversity uh, in a in a strong way. Um, as for Velasco, he stepped up twice in his career, and he's lost twice. Regis Progre stopped him in eight, and then in his next outing, Mario Barrios whooped him and stopped him in two. Rodriguez isn't at the level of those two, and he may never be, but I think he's a level above here, and Based on the indications of the small sample size of just one post Kenneth Sims fight, it looks like he still has something there. And I think he's got enough to defeat Velasco here. And I think he's got enough to defeat him by TKO. I've got Rodriguez by TKO in seven. Okay. Um, I find this matchup very interesting. You know, Elvis Rodriguez might be a top-notch prospect who had one hiccup, or he might not. And I think we're going to find out which it is, because Velasco is one of those barometer guys. As you said... The top fighters, guys like Regis Progre and Mario Barrios, they stop him. The more middling prospect types, guys like Zach Ochoa, whom Velasco upset via close decision in the Mohegan Sun bubble a year ago, he beats those guys. I think he's very capable of upsetting Rodriguez if Rodriguez is indeed not at all what he was hyped up to be. Velasco is experienced against Southpaw, so, so that part won't bother him, and He has experience in terms of going rounds. He's been past eight rounds five times, whereas Rodriguez never has. So undoubtedly, his game plan involves dragging Elvis into deep waters and seeing what happens. But really, this is is all about how good Rodriguez is. And I'm inclined, like you, to give him the benefit of the doubt and say he does have the talent. He can pop with both hands. He can execute a Freddie Roach game plan. I'll predict that Rodriguez puts it together and his talent wins out. And not stealing from your notes, I'm <laughs> saying he stops Velasco in round eight. Terrible prediction. Awful, awful. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, all right, moving on. Um, there wasn't a great deal of in-ring action this past weekend. We were expecting to see Virgil Ortiz Jr. taking on England's Michael McKinson on zone, But Ortiz was admitted to the hospital with rhabdomyolysis, uh, more commonly called rhabdo for reasons that my slow pronunciation (laughs) presumably made obvious. Um, McKinzen ended up scoring a decision over late replacement Alex Martin in what became the co-feature, while in what had been scheduled as the co-feature, but was elevated to the main event, welterweight Alexis Rocha stopped Blair the Flair Cobbs in round nine. 
Meanwhile, on ESPN Plus, from the small room at MSG, atop a card highlighting Puerto Rican and Puerto Rican-American prospects, super middleweight Edgar Berlanga, formerly known as a knockout artist, (laughs) uh, went the distance for the third straight time with a close unanimous decision victory over veteran Steve Rolls. Kieran, anything you'd like to comment on? First of all, wishing a speedy and complete recovery to Ortiz. I've never heard of Rabdo um, before. Uh, really no idea how potentially serious it is or what the prognosis is for him, but hopefully it just proves to be uh, a bump in the road. Um, and congratulations to Golden Boy and Zone for saving that card and yeah. doing a pretty good job of doing so, actually. Um, their first attempt to find a replacement for Ortiz was Jesus Antonio Perez, who said yes, but who, depending on who you ask, uh, turned out to be either 15 or 30 pounds overweight. <laughs> <laughs> so really, really hard to dehydrate enough to lose that. <laughs> so instead, they found Alex Martin, who you know entered the ring seventeen and three, left it seventeen and four. Um, yeah, good, comfortable decision uh, win there for McKinson. Um, the original, originally scheduled co-main, which as you said became the main event. That was, that was a bit of a shock, really. Cobbs seemed to be developing the potential to be a little bit of a star, but he was ultimately just really outworked, outboxed, and outfought um, by Roca. Uh, Cobbs has been getting, he, this guy's getting a lot of attention mm-hmm. for his flashy style in the ring and for his style out of it. Um, but Roca demonstrated, I think, how very often the capable, competent pro can just break down the flashy showman. Um, look, Cobbs wasn't dominated throughout. His fast hands kept him in it. Yeah, he landed a couple of good left hands. Uh, the first few rounds were fairly even until Roca started pulling away in the fifth. Um, in the end, toward the end, Roca scored a knockdown that really had a lot to Cobb's lack of fundamentals. He was twisting and turning with his hands down to get out of the way of Roca's punches, and he ended up twisting and turning right into them. Um, this was a reality check for Cobb's. Um, not quite sure where he goes from here, um, but it was a very good win for Roca. And as for the ESPN fight, yes, Belanga won. Yes, he went a bunch of rounds, um, which after the way he started his career, he certainly needs to do. Um, yes, Rolls was being exceptionally defensive throughout the contest. But last week, when we previewed this fight briefly, you expressed some doubts about Berlanga and whether his early knockout streak made him appear better than he in fact is. And he took 10 rounds to well, maybe squeak a decision against a guy that Gennady Golovkin just swatted aside. So what are your thoughts about him now? Is he going to benefit from this? Is this just the case of him getting used to a different caliber of opponent? Is this one of those deals where, okay, he's gone up a ladder. Now he's kind of plateauing a bit, but maybe that plateauing experience will enable him to increase and go back up the ladder again. Is he being judged unfairly because of that initial knockout streak? What what do you think about Edgar Berlanga right now? I am generally not so high on Edgar Berlanga right now. Um, I was prepared to say uh, unpopular opinion alert with regard to this fight, Um, but after checking Twitter, it turns out that my opinion isn't so unpopular, and my opinion is Steve Rolls won that fight. Mm. Um, I'm not calling it a robbery or anything. It was a close fight. Could have been scored either way, but I had it 96-94 for Rolls. I thought Andre Ward's scorecard was off target. He gave Berlanga the first five rounds, even while... Tim Bradley is pointing out in spots how Rolls is doing exactly what he wants to do and fighting the right fight and having moments. I had Rolls down three to two at the midway point. Andre had it five nothing. Two of the judges in the end had it 97-93 like Andre did. Clearly, Berlanga was never losing in New York, um, especially in a fight where he was coming forward. But if you watch the punches, not just the direction of the feet, 
this was a damn close fight that could have gone either way. And I hate to say this because it takes away from Rolls' very good performance, but Berlanga, there's just not much there. Um, mm. Yeah, as the KO streak was happening, I was wondering aloud if that was the worst thing for him. And it's looking like it was. Um, I think he is a limited boxer who has plateaued, and the power alone isn't getting it done above the sea level of opposition. So I'm pretty low on him right now. Uh, the prospect on this card who's going places is Xander Zayas, who won yes. in the co-feature. If one of these two top-ranked prospects is a future champ, to me, it's clearly Zayas. Yep, absolutely. Um, only a couple of non-Showtime fights of note next weekend. Uh, in Leeds, England, on his own, Josh Warrington looks to get things back on track when he faces evergreen Kiko Martinez for a featherweight belt. And in Las Vegas, Miguel Burchelt returns after suffering a knockout loss to Oscar Valdez as he takes on Jeremia Nicotila over 10 lightweight rounds. Either of those float your boat? Um... I'd say my boat is taking on a bit of water, perhaps, uh, with this one. Uh, Brichelt Nakatila, especially. I, I really don't have much to say about that. Nakatila has gotten dominated every time he's stepped up. Um, in fact, every time he's left Namibia. He's 22-0 uh, and 0 in Namibia and 0-2 elsewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. This should be a straightforward, get-well, comeback assignment for Brichelt 13 months after his knockout loss to Oscar Valdez. Warrington Martinez is by far the more interesting of these two fights. They fought in 2017. The then undefeated Warrington took a majority decision. Things have changed a bit. Warrington is coming off an upset loss to Mauricio Lara and then a disappointing two-round technical draw in the rematch. And Kiko has lost and then been resurrected a few times since. And in his most recent fight, he upset Kid Galahad in a memorable sixth-round KO. Warrington is the favorite here, and understandably... But the odds makers have it maybe a touch wide. Martinez is a plus 350 underdog. Warrington, a minus 400 favorite. I don't know. I might have to sprinkle a little something on Kiko at that price. Mm. Um, and if I do indeed bet on the fight, then I'll be much more inclined to watch the fight. Uh, so my, my leaning right now is to watch Warrington Martinez and read the result of Burchelt mm. Nakathila and decide afterwards if it's worth my time. Uh, All right, let's move along to the news segment, and uh, we opened the show with what was really the news main event, the Showtime schedule. That was far and away the biggest news of the week. There are only a handful of other items to touch on. Uh, According to Dan Raphael, Gennady Golovkin is suing Golden Boy Promotions for what he says is up to $3 million he's owed from the rematch with Canelo Alvarez. Uh, Mike Coppinger of ESPN reports that Arthur Betterbiev and Joe Smith have an agreement in principle to meet in a mouthwatering light heavyweight unification on June 18th in New York on ESPN. And a sad note, because there's always a sad note, uh, former Sports Center anchor and boxing commentator Alan Massengale died at the age of 63. Kieran, any quick thoughts on any of this news? First of all, RIP to Alan Massengale, who I knew only a little bit but who is a popular and kind member of the ringside fraternity uh, and an especially well-known figure in Southern California boxing and on TV in the LA market. Um, Golovkin suing Golden Boy is in many ways standard operating procedure for boxing and isn't necessarily a huge deal. People are suing each other all the time for contract breaches, money owed and whatnot. It's, It's sort of on the same basis basically i'm going to sue you in boxing is basically the same as do you want to have a cup of coffee anywhere else in the world (laughs) but but i also can't help but feel that golovkin's fabulous career 
it's, it's, I don't want to say petering out, that's too extreme, but it, it, it's sort of, it's becoming a little bit wrapped up in rancor and resentment, um, and particularly where Canelo is concerned. And, and I do fear a little bit for the prospect of a third fight with Alvarez, because I do feel now that Canelo is far stronger and better than he was before, and Golovkin isn't quite what he was. And I just have this horrible feeling that at the end of it all, it will only add to his feelings of resentment. And after the magnificent career that he's had and the wonderful performance he's had, he deserves better than that, I think. Um, what was the other item? Oh, yes. Better be ever versus Smith. <laughs> that, was a, um, that was a nice, oh, yes. That <laughs> um, came from the heart. Oh, it did. Look, we've talked about this before. We've talked about the possibility of it happening before. If this does actually go ahead, my God, it will have clear fight of the year potential. Look, Better be ever will start the fairly big favorite. But do not count out Joe Smith Jr., who has... He came almost from nowhere to take on and and send into retirement Bernard Hopkins, but who has since accumulated an extremely impressive resume um, and is an extraordinarily solid boxer who is going to come to fight. It's not quite your your dream fight of better be of Canelo, but gosh, it's not a bad uh, fight to keep us going until then. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, before we leave the news. Um, there's one other interesting topic in the form of an, an article that you brought to my attention on Forbes.com, um, which cited a Harris poll showing that boxing is now the fourth most popular sport in the country. The article also referred to metrics that show no other sport grew as much from 2010 to 2020. The key to this growth, apparently, the youngs. Um, figures suggest that boxing is surging in popularity among Generation Zers. Um, Eric, you're down with the youth. You're hip and groovy which i'm pretty sure is what young people still say <laughs> yeah uh i mean i know you read this article what are your thoughts anything else in that leap out at you uh, i mean do you agree with its general premise it's interesting it, it's certainly surprising that boxing would finish that high in such a poll um football obviously number one then basketball and baseball uh the latter, a sport that we're told is dying, but I guess it's doing okay after all, despite the best efforts of the folks running MLB <laughs> yeah. to kill it. Um, but boxing, look, this notion that boxing is only for the olds, um, I've been hearing that for as long as I've been covering boxing, and it's never been totally true. There are always young people you see at the fights. I get that boxing marginalized itself by going to cable and pay-per-view and is a niche sport or a cult sport or whatever you want to call it. But it's always had a little more of a young audience than we were led to believe. Um, mm. Still, I am surprised that it would finish this high in the poll. Um, I'm constantly told that golf is very popular. Not according to this poll. Maybe uh, maybe the golf-loving upper crust just controls the media and the narrative. I don't know. Um, but this is certainly good news for boxing. Um, I wonder, though, how much of the Gen Z popularity is the Jake Paul factor. Yeah. And how many of those people who aren't really boxing fans, at least not yet, but have been watching Jake Paul fights and thus say they like boxing. I wonder how many of them there are factored into this poll. That could partially explain why the sport would go from outside the top 10 in 2010 to yeah. number four now. Um, in that Forbes article, Top Ranks' Brian Kelly talked about boxers and people in boxing doing a great job making the sport and the fighters social media friendly. That may well be. I wouldn't really know. Um, my kids follow stuff on Snapchat. Um, 
neither of them has ever mentioned seeing boxing there to me. Um, but I know for sure that that is how the younger generation gets their information. Like yeah. my son does not watch Sports Center on TV, but he watches the daily Snapchat Sports Center highlight package. Oh. Um, so I don't know. My takeaway from the poll is that, yeah, boxing must be growing in popularity compared to five or 10 years ago but probably isn't quite as popular with young people as the poll indicates that mm. some of them are saying they like boxing because they like the movie Creed or they watch Jake Paul's fight. They may or may not actually be boxing fans. So I'm kind of straddling the fence here and saying that I, I assume the truth lies somewhere in between. What do you think? Yeah, somewhat similar, really. Um, I, I have had a sense, a sort of unquantifiable sense for a while that boxing has been on a bit of an upswing. And I think we've talked about it at various times over our various podcasts. Um, you touched on this. I, I hate to say it as someone who's, you know, been working in boxing for premium cable channels since 2014. But right. yeah, I, I think the fact that not all major boxing is on those two platforms and particularly that a good chunk of it now is on ESPN is probably a factor that helps. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think there's probably more to it than that. Um, it's interesting, the notion of, of the Jake Paul influence. And I had that same thought, like, I mean, that could be great, but does that mean that they are boxing fans or that they watch Jake Paul and therefore they say, I like boxing? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I am intrigued by the notion that there's something about boxing and boxers that appeals to the social media set. Um, you know, the fact that well, some fights obviously do not lend themselves at all well to the highlight clips, but some, the, just the notion that you might have a spectacular knockout mm -hmm. does lend itself quite well. So I'm curious about that. I do wonder, you know, whatever you think about him as a person or a style of boxing or career choices, I wonder, you know, how much uh, Floyd Mayweather played a role in beginning that kind of sense of elevation, that whole sure. notion of a strong outside the ring persona but when you look at the popularity like his best fights were way before he became the most popular and 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 the popularity of his appearances were out of proportion to the excitement level of in the ring so you know and he did a really good job of that and he's maintained his kind of presence in the public eye i i wonder if he deserves some credit for that look the fact that Mike Tyson continues to be in the public eye. In fact, mm -hmm. perhaps more so now than for a while. That probably doesn't hurt because now he's got this podcast and I'm sure people tune into or pay attention to uh, at least see clips of because he's Mike Tyson and he sometimes does outrageous things on the podcast, but he's also talking to a lot of other boxers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I wonder if that helps. The, the heavyweight division's been pretty interesting lately. And they, as the saying always goes, as the heavyweight division goes, there goes the state of boxing. So maybe that's something. Um, but I think it's also possible perhaps likely that is that if there is a growth in boxing it's just taking place in circles to which i'm just oblivious right okay. like it, it, it blows me away you talked earlier about javante davis it blows me away how popular he appears to be um like as a as a boxer i get it i get that he he's a good boxer and he puts on exciting fights but had did had i not known i would not ever have imagined that he would be the guy to put so many asses in seats at arenas um he's clearly speaking to um to an audience that i'm you know, in a way that i'm just blissfully aware of so 
look, I'm a middle-aged white curmudgeon living in rural Vermont. <laughs> I'm not really plugged into the scene, any kind of scene, uh, as much as I once was, uh, except the maple syrup scene, of course, which is rocking, I can tell you. Um, and yeah, it's possible, and maybe it's even likely that there's just a multiplicity of factors involved. So, yeah. Uh, my sense on an unquantifiable level is that boxing seems to be gaining somewhat in popularity. Is it that popular? I remain unconvinced. I'd be delighted if it were true, right? but I'd be surprised. Why do they never, when they do these polls, why do they never break out specifically how something is polling with middle-aged white men in rural Vermont? You never see that one separated from the bulk of the poll. I know. It's I don't know uh, what's what's the what's the right wing buzzword. It's cancel culture. That's what it is. <laughs> That's it. We're canceling all the maple syrup lovers. That's in Vermont. right. Yes. Um, one one thing that you hit on there though that uh, that I would I hadn't really thought about, but you just mentioned the as the heavyweights go, so go boxing that thing, and it particularly makes me think because they were comparing this to the 2010 poll that they did. The heavyweight division was at a real low in interest in 2010. So I That's think there true, is yeah. something to that, that the heavyweights are so much hotter now than they were a decade or so ago. Yeah, indeed. All right. It's time now for Tweet of the Week. And this week's tweet is from Michael Benson, the online boxing editor for TalkSport in the UK. Um, he mostly is famous or infamous for just taking other people's stuff and tweeting it. But um, he did that here but I, I you know he's the only person i saw quote this and i thought it was great he quoted from an interview with matchroom boxing by carl frotch who's been one of the more unique guests we've had on the podcast sure <laughs> that's a good word for <laughs> uh and frotch was asked whether his kids will one day be boxers and the rest of the tweet is a direct quote from carl it's a strict no-no i teach rocco how to fight i even body spar him i dropped him the other day <laughs> left hook to the body his right hand was too high. He didn't have the elbow in. And then the final bit is just the clincher. He's only 10. <laughs> Honestly, look, I just laughed out loud. Look, it's great for kids to learn how to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing better than, you know, having somebody like Carl Froch as your daddy. He's certainly going to teach you how to defend yourself. I don't doubt for a second that plenty of boxers do something similar with their youngsters. But especially after having Carl on the podcast and the, getting a sense of the kind of character that he is, I just cracked up at the thought of him, like, getting his kid in the ring in the garage and, like, dropping him with a left hook to the body and being like, right, next time, keep your elbow in and walking <laughs> off for, you know, dinner or whatever. It, it, it just made me laugh. Yeah, I w as you were starting to read the tweet, I was going to ask, how old is, is Rocco? Uh, so <laughs> it turns out he's 10. Yeah, I guess some, some mixed judgment, we'll say, from Carl Frotch. Um good judgment in wanting to steer your son away from boxing if he yes. doesn't absolutely need to go into boxing um questionable judgment a former world-class possibly <laughs> hall of fame bound professional boxer sparring with his 10 year old sons although at least he's keeping it to the body i guess yep, that's a exactly. little safer um the bit about not wanting his son to become a boxer. That's really interesting. And of course, you know, we yeah. were talking about Tim Zhu uh, earlier in the podcast. Um, these like fathers who do or don't steer their kids into boxing. Yeah. Ultimately, it's within Carl Frotch's reach to control this to a certain point. And then at a certain age, his son gets to start making decisions for himself. So, you know, that it's not it's not ultimately going to be up to him if Rocco really decides he wants to be a boxer. You know, it's not his dad's place to stop him. Uh, but for now, yeah, 
saying that you don't want your 10 year old to become a pro boxer. I think that is a logical conclusion uh, to reach and uh, a perfectly reasonable bit of parenting there from Carl Frotch. The body shot to the 10 year old, maybe not such great parenting. <laughs> it actually really surprises me how many children of, of successful pro boxers want to go become pro boxers. I mean, I understand that you would want to do what your dad did mm -hmm. and, and, and all of that. But, you know, as we always say that, like, to become a pro boxer, you need to have had that really that poverty, that's that massive chip on your shoulder. And, you know, I, I doubt that Rocco Frotch is ever going to want for anything. I'm sure Carl made, made plenty of money in his career, for example. Mm -hmm. And same with Giovanni Marquez or Tim right. Zhu or, you know, and yet somehow, nonetheless, there's still something there. Even if they don't have that sense of grinding poverty, that desperation to escape, there's obviously something there either in the genes or, or the way that they're brought up that, that, that still gives them that taste for the game and or Connor Ben's another one or mm. you know and they, they can still be pretty good at it apparently so. yeah or just a different kind of chip on your shoulder not that you're fighting out of poverty and need this but a chip on your shoulder to prove that you're not yeah. just a last name that you can do this on, on your own and make something of yourself as a fighter I think some of them come up with a, with a lot to prove in that sense yeah yep. you you and Eli ever put on put on the gloves <laughs> Um, listen, if I knock out my son with a body shot, that stays in house. I don't publicize that. <laughs> there you go. That's what that's what they say about gym work, man. I should always exactly stay. Happens in the gym, stays in the gym. That's right. <laughs> also, also, if Eli's getting knocked out by you, then well, he's definitely shouldn't be a professor. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll say this. So he's uh, twelve and a half now. I could still take him. I assume if we if we sparred, it's not going to be true for too much longer. <laughs> yeah. I'm running out of time. Yep. All right. To conclude, it is time for me to give you this week's top five challenge. And I mentioned earlier how I was tempted to talk about all the junior middleweight bouts on the upcoming Showtime schedule. Uh, but instead, I will turn the topic into this week's challenge. It isn't the most storied of divisions, 154 pounds, but at the same time, it's actually been around 60 years now. And it has seen some great champions. And some great challenges and as a result it has yielded some cracking fights so my challenge to you as we enter a period in which showtime schedule is going to do a lot to shake out the present junior middleweight standings list the best of the 154 pound fights over the last 60 or so years five of the best between 1962 and 2022 one every 12 years or thereabouts I think you can do that, can you? Yeah, I think I can. I have one coming straight to mind that I was uh, ringside for, a great fight that I think will probably land in the top five. I'm not sure how high. But yeah, uh, this will be a interesting one to research and uh, see what ones I'm not thinking of. But uh, it, it has been a consistently an entertaining division with a lot of exciting fighters. So uh, I don't think I'll have too much trouble finding five great fights. All right, that will do it. For this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Many thanks again to Terrell Cachet for joining us. We will be back next week to look back at his fight card and more. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.